Good morning. morning. Welcome to West County Fellowship. Um, Open your Bibles to Colossians, the first chapter. And while you're doing that, I'll give you a little sneak peek into uh, some things we're going to be announcing in a few weeks. So uh, the last Sunday of this month, I think it's the 24th or the 25th, we're going to let you all in as to what we've been planning uh, for this church. Um, uh, our, our Bridge Commission has been meeting regularly, and we've been discussing a lot of new and exciting things for this congregation. Um, so uh, I don't want to um, go into all the details now, but in a couple weeks, we're just going to let you in on everything that's going on, our plans for the future. As we approach the end of this year and move into the new year, and um, and we're really excited about what the Lord is doing here. Um, yeah, I guess that's all I'll say right now. I'm trying to think what else I can say without without uh, saying too much. But um, I think you can probably tell that some things have changed a little bit. You might notice that in in the service in our liturgy, there's some little tweaks, and those are not. Uh, um, by happenstance, we've, we've, we've planned those, and we're, um, Kevin said something interesting. He said, you know, this is, we're in perpetual beta stage. So, in other words, we're, we're constantly trying to refine uh, how we lift up our hearts to the Lord and worship, and uh, we're just seeking to uh, glorify God and, and edify each other as a congregation. Um, I've noticed a lot of us have started to come into this center section and even up front, and uh, that's good. It'd be, I'd like this to continue to do that, to come into this center section. Um, and one of the reasons for that is that um, uh, we want to lift up our voices together as a body of believers and get to know each other better. And I have the sneaking suspicion that uh, some of us probably don't know each other very well. And we're, we, we, hope to, we hope to change that. And also, if it's hard for you to um, see the person sitting next to you that you worship with every Sunday as your neighbor, it's going to be really hard for you to see the visitor as your neighbor or the person in your neighborhood or the person on your job. And so it'll be really hard to, to, um, to cross that barrier, to share the gospel or to be a light to the world. So this is kind of a proving ground for us where um, we learn to love each other here and to see each other as our neighbor and our brother and sister and, uh, and we want the visitor also. And we also want to embody the type of evangelism that, uh, that, that shares the gospel with everyone. And so um, the purpose of us coming together, sitting closer, is for that end. Um, so uh, <clears throat> Colossians chapter 1. I'm not good at transitions. I don't know how to end that. Like the end. Okay, Colossians 1 now. <laughs> Colossians 1. Starting in verse 24, going through the end of the chapter to verse 29. And it reads, Now I rejoice in my sufferings, For your sake and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, 
that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this rich um, word that you have given us. Lord, um, as we've been moving through uh, the book of Colossians, we have been encouraged to grow in the knowledge of your will and to bear fruit in a way that is pleasing unto the Lord. And by doing so, we uh, learn more and more about you. Uh, we have also encountered the knowledge that you, your son, is the firstborn of not only creation, but of, of, uh, from the dead also, and of new creation. And that in Jesus Christ, all things hold together, for he is the image of the invisible God. Lord, we have seen how um, you have made us and transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your Son. And not only that, O oh God, uh, how that we were once alienated from the promises, but you have now made us holy and admonished us to continue. Lord God, now as we move into this, uh, this last section of the chapter, help us to understand um, these verses and um, what it means, what ministry means, O oh God, as Paul uh, explains the marks of his ministry. Lord, uh, illuminate our hearts and illuminate your word, and uh, we pray for the anointing of your Holy Spirit to fill this place this morning. Convince us and convict us of the word of God, and let our hearts be transformed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, two great doctrines that emerge from the Protestant Reformation were um, salvation by grace through faith. That's why we as Protestants have assurance. Uh, our salvation is not up in the air, waiting on one more act of penitence. We can trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation. We are assured that by grace through faith that we have been saved and justified because it's not what we do but what Christ has done for us. The second doctrine that has endured from the Protestant Reformation is the priesthood of all believers. Um, the priesthood of all believers is the idea that each one of us, um, uh, 2 Corinthians 3 and 6, you are all able ministers of the New Testament, each one of us has access to God. Each one of us can approach God in prayer. We can approach God through the study of his holy word. And so in that sense, every one of us have a part to play in ministry. So Paul's uh, words here in the last part of chapter 1 are really uh, the marks of ministry, the marks of Paul's ministry. But 
to keep us from thinking that that's good for Paul, as we learn about Paul's ministry, I want us to be encouraged to know that that the marks of Paul's ministry in many ways are also the marks for ministry for every one of us because each one of us is called to partake of the Great Commission and what it means to share the gospel and embody the witness of the risen Lord, our Savior Jesus Christ. And so ministry, remember the priesthood of all believers, the ministry is not just for the minister. And now it's not always in the capacity of what I'm doing, preaching before a congregation behind a lectern or a pulpit, but every one of us is called to participate in the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so there are four words that, um, four words that Paul uses uh, to characterize his ministry here in these uh, five verses. And they are suffering, stewardship, mystery, and labor. I'll repeat them. The four words that characterize Paul's ministry here in these five verses are suffering, stewardship, mystery, and labor. So the first mark of ministry is suffering. Look at verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings, for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, at first glance, this seems like kind of a confusing passage of scripture. In fact, I would say that it's a hotly debated uh, verse in the Bible because it really seems confusing. I asked my wife, I said, I said Maribel, what does it feel like that verse is saying? And she said, well, it feels like it's saying that Christ didn't do enough on the cross. It's really a hard verse. I mean, it's like, what's wrong with your theology, Paul? Did you have a lapse in your... We know this isn't what you really believe, right, Paul? I mean, clearly, everywhere else in the New Testament, um, Paul and the, and the other New Testament writers proclaim Jesus' all-sufficient uh, sacrifice on the cross. So what in the world is Paul talking about? Well, the first century church was being attacked, and Paul was often the object of persecution on its behalf. Paul is this uh, ambassador for Jesus Christ, and he's also um, an ambassador for the church. He represents the church. He's preaching the gospel. And so uh, for Paul, the afflictions that he suffer, that he suffers, um, they symbolize uh, the church's body, uh, the, the church as the body of Jesus Christ, right? So in a couple verses earlier, remember uh, two sermons ago, it says that it, we, we read that Jesus was the head of the body, the church. Well, we're the body, and so if Jesus suffered, it would make sense that his body also participates in suffering. And so what Paul is saying is that uh, he's filling up what is lacking in the body, the church. In other words, the church is supposed to reflect the kind of suffering that Jesus experienced. Not exactly the kind of suffering, but if Jesus had to suffer, then his body suffers also. So the body of Christ, the believers, the church, also partake of Christ's sufferings. And that's what he's saying. And so Paul, in some way, sees himself as receiving the brunt of persecution on behalf of the body of Christ. In, in the same way that Jesus suffered for his people, Paul sees himself as 
if he can, deflecting the persecution and suffering away from uh, individual people and, and receiving it for himself. If you read through the epistles, every, at every turn, Paul is, is persecuted or, or he's, he's being beaten or someone is, is after his life. Um, in Acts 9 and 5, there is Paul's conversion story. He's on the road to Damascus. He has received certificates from the chief priests to go after the Christians. And at this time, he is Saul of Tarsus, right? He's not Paul. He's certainly not St. Paul. He's Saul of Tarsus, and he's a rabbi, and he is as observant a Jew as they come. And as far as he's concerned, Christians are, uh, they, are uh, they have um, um, apostatized from the Jewish faith. They are, they are mangling and uh, misrepresenting what he knows to be uh, his religion. And so he's going after them. And on the road to Damascus, you know the story, Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus, brighter than the sun at noon. And a voice cries out from heaven, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. And his conversion happens right there on that road, but he's blind, immediately blinded. And his natural blinding is a, really a result of his inward spiritual blindness to the gospel. And God speaks to a man named Ananias and says, go get this guy Saul and, and take him into your house um, for a couple days. You know, I've called him. And, and Ananias says, you know, God, you've got the wrong guy here. Uh, this Saul character is a persecutor of your people. And God says, he is my chosen vessel, for I have called him to, to do many things and suffer many things for my name. And so Paul sees suffering as a mark of his ministry. He considers uh, uh, suffering um, to symbolize what it means to be uh, a minister of the gospel, right? The very previous verse in verse 23, uh, he declared that he was a minister of the gospel, which was being proclaimed in all creation. And so he's suffering on behalf of the message of the gospel of Christ. He's suffering on behalf of the church. And when we suffer, we're not merely imitating Jesus, but we're incorporated into his life, this paradoxical new way of life, right? And what I mean by that is the way up is actually the way down. The way for exaltation is actually to be abased and made low. The way for strength is, the way to become strong is actually to become weak. And so the gospel is this paradoxical new way of life that Paul is basically saying, suffering is, is, is this mark of my ministry. And look what he says. He says, now I rejoice, right? We, we don't typically rejoice at suffering, but Paul sees suffering because in his mind, it's so closely associated with what his Lord Jesus endured, and he rejoices over it. In the book of Acts, in the fifth chapter, when Peter and John are arrested and beaten for preaching in the name of Jesus, they're released and admonished to stop preaching in that name. The Bible says that they, they, they left the prison and they went about rejoicing. 
I, I could see them almost skipping along because they were counted worthy, it says in Acts, to suffer shame for the name of Christ. So for them and for Paul and for the New Testament church in the first century, suffering, suffering was actually a great privilege because it meant they were participating and partaking of Christ's afflictions. It, 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 was, it was seen as a, uh, a mark of what it meant to be a Christian, and for Paul, it's a mark of his ministry. He sees it as a qualification. He applies to himself the same pattern of suffering on behalf of others that was worked out on the cross. I mean, when Paul writes this letter, he's actually writing from prison. He doesn't even know the Colossians. Uh, uh, Epaphras, we mentioned this in, when we, in our first sermon, Epaphras, who is the leader of the Colossian church, is with Paul, and so Paul is writing this letter of admonition and encouragement to the Colossians. Now, just to be clear, Paul is, is not thinking about uh, saving the Colossians from the consequences of their sin. That was done on the cross. Um, at the Council of Nicaea in 318, uh, which was an important church meeting in the 4th century AD, uh, there were 318 um, delegates attending. And fewer than 12 had lost an eye or a hand or did not limp um, on a leg lamed by torture for their Christian faith. It was a great thing. In fact, in those days, uh, when persecution hit, if you stood up for your faith, they called that group of those group of, of people who did not um, who did not shrink back. They called them con the confessors. And so, in the early church, if you walked around scarred, missing an eye, missing a limb, limping, you received actually great re people revered you because it was considered a great thing to have suffered for the name of Christ. Now, I don't have to say much about how our world has changed. <laughs> even as Christians, because we've been comfortable for a long time. And we can see right now in our culture that some of those things are starting to change. And so as we look at what Paul considers uh, an important mark of his ministry, um, we, can, we can live in the world today not thinking that somehow God has abandoned us, but realizing that, it, that, that suffering ebbs and flows throughout the history of the church. And there are times where the, where the church... Uh, um, is, doesn't experience much persecution, and there are other times where the church experiences intense persecution. But in all of it, God has called us to boldly and courageously proclaim his name. We shouldn't think about uh, just persecution when we think about what it means to suffer, but any suffering that comes from all of life's departments, Right? We're not, none of us here are, are, are risking uh, losing our heads like Christians in the Middle East, but anytime we suffer, um, it's, it's, it's an opportunity to reflect the glory of God. Um, one reason why suffering takes us by surprise is because the church has kind of forgotten how to apply to ourselves the fact that um, we're the body of the crucified Messiah. And that's why sometimes suffering catches us by surprise, is we forget that, that we're the body of Christ. We're the body of the crucified Messiah. So any concept 
of fellowship with Jesus that does not include suffering is out of order. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. So if you're here this morning and you are bearing the marks, you're bearing the scars of suffering, you've had a tough week, you're going through something right now that maybe you can't even share with others, some gut-wrenching experience, some, your heart is broken, I say to you, welcome, you're in good company. Because Paul bore the marks and scars of suffering as did his Lord Jesus. The second mark of ministry is stewardship. Look at verse 25. He says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul says that he became a minister of the the church according to the stewardship from God given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. And so when he says he's making the word of God fully known, he doesn't just mean by preaching. In Paul's mind, the word of God is a power and a force that has been let loose in the world. And as he suffers and endures afflictions, he is letting the word of God have its full effect. Not only on him, but on his surroundings and on the Colossian church. And God has made him a steward that as he faithfully and obediently lives out what God has commanded him to preach the gospel and endure trials and sufferings and afflictions, he is making the word of God fully known. God has called us to steward his word. God has called each and every one of us to let his word have its full effect on our lives. That's what Paul is talking about here. The word steward literally translated means um, divine office. Uh, Paul is an officer, essentially, or a servant appointed by God um, to make what the Colossians have heard, which is the gospel, to make it fully known and lived out. Paul views himself as a divinely commissioned steward. Um, The word itself... Um, was widely used in the Roman world for an administrator of a large household or estate. Paul's responsibility was to administer, to steward, to manage God's business. And that's what God calls each and every one of us to do as we participate in ministry, as we live out God's commands in our lives. It's to steward the word it's to, it's to manage God's business, right? Jesus, he, he says uh, to his parents, I must be about my father's business. Each one of us has to be about our father's business. God has commanded us to steward his household. And so the question this morning is, are you letting the word of God have its full effect on your life? Are you making the word of God fully known as you live out um, your daily life? Are you a steward of your life and everything in it? Do you see the responsibilities and everything you have in your life as being given to you by God to steward and to faithfully manage for his name and for his glory? Because a lot of you are thinking, 
look, I, I work a 40, 50 hour a week, you know, work week, and I go home and I'm beat, and I, I, you know, what, I don't know what I'm doing for, for the kingdom. You know, when you faithfully live out whatever obligation responsibilities you have, God has called each and every one of us to a particular calling. Uh, for some of us, it's uh, being a stay-at-home mom. For, for some of you, it's being a, uh, an out-of-the-house work mom. I've learned not to ask women anymore, do you work? That's the wrong question. The question is, do you work in the home or out of the home or both? <laughs> so guys, don't tell women, you know, especially if they're mothers, do you work? Say, do you work in the home or out of the home? But, but those are areas that God has called us to steward and to, and to be faithful over. Our family, our faith, our finances, our, our talents, our time, all of these things we steward. And as we steward them faithfully, as we manage all of the responsibilities God has given to us, we faithfully reflect him as we obediently live out our lives in faithfulness and hard work. That's our fourth point. We'll get there in a minute. But these are things that God has called us to steward. And in each of those, in each of those scenarios and instances, there are opportunities for us to share the gospel. Why do you do what you do? Why do you you know, why do you, you, you scrub the dishes and clean the house and change the baby's diapers? Or why do you work and then come home and, and then work at home? And then, you know, when you're tired and you could be doing something from your, for yourself, you know, you take your family out. And why do you do all these different things? And, and you know, you don't spend re recklessly. And I mean, why do you do all this? These are all opportunities for us to proclaim the gospel. And, and at, first, at first glance, it doesn't, doesn't seem that way, but that's exactly what God has called us to do, is to live out the gospel in every area of our lives, whatever he has called us to do. So the third mark of ministry, we've talked about suffering, we've talked about stewardship, and the third mark of ministry is mystery. He says in verse 26 and 27, the mystery hidden for ages but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Mystery. You probably don't think about ministry that way, do you? Uh, in Paul's day, there were a lot of stories about the world. Stories of gods and goddesses, myths and legends, and some that purported to tell the history and the origin of ancient Greece, like Homer's Iliad. Um, for the Jews and for Paul, and for us too, the Hebrew scriptures tell the true story of the world. But it was like a novel in many ways. Our first parents, they had everything. They lived in paradise, but they exchanged it for the lie that they could become like God. The Bible tells the story of how our world became broken and filled with violence and sin and how the light of hope shimmered when God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, right? I will make you great, your name great, and your descendants great, and in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And as the Jews read this, they're thinking, yes, you know, this is how God is going to fix the world, but, but how is he going to do it exactly? And just when this story, right, this novel, it's like a true novel, just when this novel seems to reach a, a, a pinnacle or a zenith, right, their dreams and their hopes are dashed, right? Israel, which is supposed to reflect the light of God's glory to the nations, 
they, they, they wreck it. They ruin it. They fall into idolatry and unfaithfulness. And just when they think that God is going to fix the world through us by destroying our enemies, they become the enemy, right? They become the bad guys, and God has to judge them. And so Paul is filled with all of the angst and, and anticipation and expectation of, of the history of the world and of the Jewish people who have been reading their Bible, and they've been reading the prophets who left off with a cliffhanger. There's this mystery. My daughter Naomi, she, she loves mystery novels, and she plows through them because she wants to get to the end, right? So, I, you know, I'll give her like, you know, an Emily Bronte or, you know, whatever book it is, and it's, you know, 500 pages, and like two days later, she's done with it. Because she, was, she had so much anticipation and excitement to find out, you know, the answer to the mystery. And that she plows right through them. And the Old Testament leaves off with this cliffhanger in Malachi 3 and 1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And so for Paul, Jesus is the climax of the mystery of the Old Testament scriptures. The 39 books of the Old Testament tell the suspenseful story of redemption. And Paul declares here in Colossians that the mystery that is made known when the word of God has its full effect on our lives is none other than this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the climax to the covenant. This is the answer to the cliffhanger of the entire Old Testament and everything they had been hoping for and wishing for. And Paul's words are filled with excitement. He's saying this is the mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations, but now it's been revealed to his saints. He's ecstatic. He's saying that, that everything that we've been waiting to hear and to know about how God would fix the world, here it is. It's Jesus, the hope of glory. And, he, and it's not just for God's people, Israel, anymore. It's for everyone. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory. So when, when, they, when they said, how is God going to fix the world? This is how. Salvation is no longer uh, the prerogative of one ethnicity or one nation or one group of people, but the doors have swung open. This is how God's going to fix the world. Salvation now will go to all men, all nations, all ethnicities. Paul is declaring that this mystery, which had been hidden for the ages, is this simple truth, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's now revealed, and this mystery is really this. And this, this is the impact of, of what Christ in you, the hope of glory, means. This is the, the import and the power of it. That the God who transcends time and space, who created all things... Ages past, ages present, ages future has come to dwell in our hearts and in the world in the person and work of Jesus and his spirit. 
once only known by the Jews, but now proclaimed by people of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Jesus is the climax of the Old Testament. He is the answer to the mystery of the prophets. And then fourth and finally, the fourth mark of ministry is labor. Paul closely connects God's purpose in the world with his own work. Look at what he says in verse 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this, so now we've looked at, now we're kind of moving from the marks of ministry to the purpose of ministry. And this is how he wraps up his, these verses here. He wraps up this, this little uh, saying. He's basically moved from the marks that characterize his ministry to the purpose of ministry. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. This little paradox here neatly um, captures um, the balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We're working hard to proclaim this message, the mystery of the ages, Christ in you, the hope of glory, but it's not just our work. It is not us just working of our own energy, trying to do something that may or may not be successful. He's saying that the work that I work, the labor, the toil that I'm uh, uh, entangled with is, is, is really not my own. It's the grace of God that is working in me to accomplish this. And he uses these words toil, and he uses the word struggle. And he's saying it's hard labor. Ministry is hard labor. You know, it's not easy to be a Christian. It's not. Some of you this week have gone through some excruciating things. I've prayed with some people this week. I've talked with some people this week, and I can tell you that you're not alone. You're not the only one going through challenges and struggles. It's, it's labor. This is, this is hard work. This isn't, this isn't a cakewalk, you know? It's not, a, it's not a, a, a bed of roses. This is tough. And Paul calls it toil and struggle, but he says this, you're not alone. You're not working by yourself of your own energy with no guarantee of success. The grace of God is working in you. Yeah, you're working hard, but God is working in you, strengthening you for this cause and for this purpose. I don't believe the Great Commission is a suggestion. We, we, we see the Great Commission as being, you know, Matthew 28, Matthew 28, 19, but, but really it starts in verse 18 where Jesus says, all power and authority in earth has been given to me, therefore go and, you know, proclaim you know, teaching and baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, right? All power has been given to Jesus. It's almost a guarantee. In fact, I would say it's a guarantee of success. Of course, it's not, we're not keeping score, but the idea is that what we're doing is not a futile effort. We are proclaiming because God has chosen and elected people before the foundation of the world, our message that goes out will reach people. 
people will come to know Jesus. People will be saved. He says he toils, he struggles. Those are both words that convey the idea of labor, but it's not of his own energy, and it's not of our own energy. It's God who works in us. And this work consists in proclaiming Jesus. And there's a twofold aspect of this proclamation. And so we're given not just a mark of ministry, again, but the purpose of ministry. By proclaiming Christ, we are confronting the world's system of thinking and behavior. So there's two parts here. He says, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And this is what we're doing when we proclaim the gospel. We're warning people, right? The, the word in the original language basically says that we're correcting wrong behavior, right? It, it, it speaks of challenging the way people think. So when we're warning, we're proclaiming that, look, there are certain things that do not comport with what it means to know God, especially among the church. I mean, Paul's, the context of Paul's words of ministry are really talking about those who profess Jesus, and that's what we do. We're actually challenging kind of uh, our natural way of thinking by, by, by teaching and learning what God, learning the character of God, right? When, when, we, when we preach every Sunday, when we hear the word of God, when you pray, we're being conformed to the likeness and image of Jesus Christ. And we need it weekly, right? We really need it daily, but we can't meet daily. <laughs> you've, got, you've got to go to work and we've got, we all have things to do, but we need the word of God to, to challenge us and it's a warning against behaving in the wrong way. And God gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit. And besides the gift of the Holy Spirit, we have the gift of Scripture, which is our greatest treasure because in it are the words of life, the instructions for living. The other day, uh, someone very close to me said... Um, I'm having a conversation, this is what they said to me, I'm having a conversation with someone who believes that people are born gay, what do I tell them? Now, I had an opinion on the matter, but I said, well, let's look at the Bible. Let's look at what Scripture says, and I shot them a bunch of Scriptures, and they were, they were astonished that the Bible was so clear on it. The, the Word of God are the words of life. The Psalms say they're a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. They light the way in the darkness. And so teaching, and we're proclaiming Jesus, teaching and instructing, so that we may present you perfect or mature in Christ on the day of judgment. Our salvation isn't the end, it's just the beginning. God is perfecting us, he's maturing us, he is sanctifying us, and he's conforming us to the likeness and image of Jesus. And so this morning I ask you, what are you laboring for? What is the object of your hard work? What is the goal? Is it just retirement? Are you just hoping to have a comfortable enough nest egg so that when you reach a certain age, you can just take it easy? Because if that's simply your goal, if that's the only object of your labor, you're going to come up short. You're going to be disappointed. Because that's not enough. That's not enough to fulfill us. God has made us for worship. He has made us for his glory. And anything short of the proclamation and work of his kingdom won't satisfy. 
God has called us to this work. He has called us to join in this labor. Let's pray. Father, um, our hearts can easily become wayward with uh, self-absorption and we can be distracted with the cares of this life. You have called us to work and to, to, to pay our bills and to raise our children, and some of that may seem mundane on the surface, but even in those things, oh God, we are not just doing them to do them, but we're doing them, oh God, for your name. We're teaching not only uh, other people but our children for your glory and for your kingdom. We're working, O oh God, so that we might reflect what it means to be faithful and diligent in all things. Lord, give us a renewed vision of your glory that we might be uh, invigorated with the work of the kingdom. Help us each to embrace our own unique calling which is subsumed in the greater calling of your kingdom work to live for you, and to die for you. Lord, we thank you for this, O oh God, in Jesus' name. As the ushers come by with the baskets, would you give your tithes and offerings this